Welcome to Toward Wellbeing, a podcast that seeks to offer wellness information and explore solutions to well-being challenges faced by the legal community. I'm your host, Denise Permay, and I'm the Associate Director of the DC Bar Lawyer Assistance Program. We are happy you are joining us today. As a reminder, we coordinate each podcast with the Washington Lawyer Magazine issue using the LAP column Toward Wellbeing as a jumping off point for a more in-depth conversation around the column's topics. The March-April issue column is called The Thousand Putts That Undermine Wellbeing. It was written by one of our guests today, Ellen Ostro. Ellen is a PhD psychologist, an ICF certified coach, and the founding principal of Lawyers Life Coach LLC, a coaching and consulting firm dedicated to the advancement of women and diverse attorneys for the past 23 years. Our second guest for today's podcast is Rashida McMurray Abdullah. Rashida is the Chief Diversity Officer at Wiley. She is Wiley's first Chief Diversity Officer and is responsible for translating the firm's diversity, equity, and inclusion goals into strategic action. Rashida has advised both law firm and senior legal executives in innovating legal business operations. Thank you for being with me today, Ellen and Rashida. I am so happy to have you both. The March-April column is about the intersectionality of diversity, gender, and lawyer well-being, and the impact that unconscious bias, racism, and microaggressions have on lawyers of color with a focus on the responsibility that legal employers have to address this in their efforts to improve lawyer well-being. So I'm really looking forward to everything you both have to say on this topic. It's probably a topic we could talk about for two hours, but I'd like to start out, I think, just by asking Ellen, and then we're going to have a conversation, which is going to be very informative, I'm sure, for all of our guests today. But Ellen, you have consulted with many firms about their well-being efforts. How are the current wellness and happiness initiatives in firms failing diverse attorneys? I'm delighted to be here, Denise. Thank you for inviting me. I would say that the current wellness and happiness initiatives are individual level focused. So if as an individual, I want to practice mindfulness or go to a relaxation room, then I have an opportunity to decompress. But none of these initiatives, at least to my knowledge, are really addressed to the organizational and systemic issues that affect women and diverse attorneys. Firms continue to be essentially monocultural clubs. They best support and optimize the functioning of the lawyers for whom they were created, white men. And they reflect the values and the behavior patterns of their white male leaders. So they are fundamentally inhospitable cultures to people who are not white men. Billable hours is not a welcoming environment for anybody with family responsibilities, and that typically means women. In-group favoritism makes it difficult for women and diverse attorneys to feel like they belong. There's a tremendous emphasis on fitting in and the amount of energy that women and diverse attorneys have to spend covering, not bringing their full selves to work because the environment is uh, not psychologically safe, diminishes their well-being, the need to prove yourself over and over again because you're not granted the same assumption of competence 
that your white male colleagues are is incredibly stressful. And then there's what you mentioned the article addresses, and that's microaggressions. Those are defined as everyday verbal and nonverbal slights and insults, whether they are intended or not, that communicate negative, demeaning, or derogatory messages to people based solely on their marginalized group membership. And if you look at the research, they're actually more stressful to deal with for many attorneys, particularly um, Black attorneys, than overt racism, because they're crazy making. They are things like rudeness and insensitivity and lack of eye contact and being excluded, you know, whether it's from the email string or from participating in some opportunity. And when an individual experiences those, they're offensive, which causes stress. And they're also confusing. There's ambiguity about, you know, did that person really mean that? Am I taking it the wrong way? A lot of second guessing of oneself, you know, am I being too sensitive? You know, should I respond? And if the individual chooses to challenge the microaggression, the offender typically gets defensive, which is just a further invalidation. So we're talking about all kinds of organizational characteristics that undermine the wellness, in addition to the sheer stress of billable hours that is affecting every lawyer in a firm, but these additional sources of chronic stress that compromise immune functioning, create higher risk for cardiovascular disease, feelings of alienation, loss of confidence, depression, and certainly undermine wellness. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so alarming. Rashida, what's your take? Because I know as in your experience as chief diversity officer, you probably can tell us a lot about why it's so important to have a DEI and inclusion strategy as, um, as a pillar of well-being of a well-being program in a firm or a legal employer. Yeah, thank you, Denise. And again, thank you for the invitation to join you and Ellen today to talk about two of my particular topics that I'm really passionate about, which is diversity, equity, inclusion, and well-being. And I think what's very interesting, if I could just take a step back, is when we think about how the ABA had first started to look at the concept of wellness in the, in the legal profession itself. And the thought was really that as a profession, we were failing all lawyers with respect to their ability to show up. Um, and my favorite quote from the ABA was, a good lawyer is a healthy lawyer. So if we start with that premise of like really thinking about what is healthy, it means that people can come and feel authentic and be their best selves. And as a profession, we were kind of failing short for some of the things that Ellen had shared with respect to the stringent nature. And, and I think uh, initially, when I was doing a lot of advising pre-pandemic, some of the pushback would be with clients and saying, we can't move to virtual operations or we can't change the way we deliver legal services because this is the way we've always done it. And I think what we found and what we've really learned, and, and I'd love to for us as a profession to really take some of these great lessons learned that we've gotten from the pandemic to think about how do we infuse that? So now moving forward, when we're, there's been a lot of emphasis on DEI is effectiveness at law firms, or broadly, you know, as we're having these conversations, there's renewed focus. And so what normally started as, well, maybe a little mindfulness, maybe I need to stand up. It's really brought, brought into having a conversation about 
do people and the culture make people feel like they can grow, they can connect, they can belong? And what does it really mean to say to someone, do you belong here? What does it really mean to say to someone you can connect and grow here? And part of what we found is that having people have the ability to be able to share what most people would say their authentic self. So that they're presenting a part of themselves and not thinking, I'm going to be judged for this. I'm not going to be able to navigate my organization because I just don't look like someone else. And what we found is from over time is that in most organizations, the people who are your biggest mentors and champions and sponsors typically don't look like you. So that doesn't need to be the criteria. What it needs to be is do we respect each other? Are we kind to each other? Um, Do we show empathy and compassion for each other? And I think traditionally, those may not have been synonymous with being an effective lawyer. But I think as a profession, we're changing about how we think about engaging each other and engaging others in the practice of law. I was smiling when I heard you say that those characteristics may not be synonymous with what we've considered the practice of law. I think we would be hard pressed to find many associates these days who would say that the partner for whom they work is the most compassionate and empathic person they have ever interacted with. And certainly if those were the characteristics of the organizational leaders, and I'm not trying to diminish them as human beings, but that is not, that's the part of themselves that they leave at home, even if they are white men. But if that were the norm, we would probably have to work a lot less hard on diversity and inclusion. Yeah. I think that's a great point, Alan. Like, how do we move forward? I I think that when we think about pre-pandemic, there was a lot of inflexibility within organizations. And many organizations, including my own, had to pivot quickly because that's what, what was demanded and required. Um, And we found there was a whole different dynamic. There was some actually, some joy to be able to be in a room with someone and realize that you only knew a quarter of them. So for example, um, the introduction of little children or barking dogs or cats (laughs) that come across the screen. I think that was an opportunity for us to start to see each other as more human, right? And be able to say, Um, What I've heard internally is that our associates are really appreciative when they have a partner who says, oh, I I know you said you had a hard stop at five o'clock. Can you go a little bit longer? And then the associate has responded, oh, I was just going for a run. But instead of saying, okay, let's continue through, that partner says, why don't you go for your run and then come back? And that does a couple of things. One, it allows that person to kind of take a break, recharge, re-energize. But then it also demonstrates that someone cares about their well-being. And when they come back to do that additional work, then instead they have a much more energized state. And I think it was really important when we were having our initial discussion, Ellen, you shared about as a lawyer, one of the things that you really spend a lot of time is that cognitive function. And so if we're not doing things to make it easy for people to think and be able to think unfiltered then we're not actually increasing productivity. And that's what we really want to do. We want to have to drive higher performance. And I think that the understanding now, of course, we have a long way to go. But I think even in the last year with now showing the studies 
about how diversity has increased. And I think it's because we're having the conversation and we're being intentional and we're saying we could do better. So for example, NALP actually released a press release um, in January that said in 2021, that the summer associate class nationwide was the most diverse it's ever been. And that was with respect to gender, race and ethnicity, and also LGBTQ+. So that, I mean, I know we had a pandemic and that took a Herculean effort, but we're now seem to be trending because people are having the conversation, people are talking about it, and people are not afraid to say, hey, how are you doing? And that can go a long way. And rather than just expecting the person to say, okay, and not really caring because it's a formality, people are delving a little bit deeper in why is that happening? Um, and so Ellen, I'm also interested to find out, like, are you also seeing those same trends as you're consulting and working with different leaders on their experiences? So yes, I'm seeing um, more associates being recruited, but I think if the culture does not change dramatically, they're not going to stick around. It may be different at Wiley, but in general, what I see is just cultures, you know, everybody's been talking about, we have to get back to the office because the firm's culture is being hurt by people working remotely. Only nobody ever actually identifies like, what are those cultural elements that are being lost? I see the cultures as fundamentally the same as they have always been. I certainly have seen some of the kind of sharing that you're talking about, but in my working with uh, women and diverse attorneys, I have not heard anything different from them than I've been hearing for the past 23 years about their experience. And for many of them, it's become even more difficult because dealing with the pandemic is exhausting, Dealing with systemic racism is exhausting and dealing with the lack of real inclusion, the lack of real psychological safety is exhausting. And the other part of it is that it, what you were talking about in terms of cognitive effects, you know, it's, it's amazing to me that you would go and recruit all of this talent and then set up circumstances that undermine the ability of that talent to function optimally. It's like you know, why don't you go buy a souped up sports car and then take out four of the cylinders? It is so self-defeating for the firms being in, a, in an environment that is not safe, that requires some kind of covering or fitting in, that can make you crazy trying to decipher what all those messages mean, that confronts you with stereotype threat because you stand out in your practice group. All of those things really compromise cognitive functioning. So why would you recruit this incredible talent and then engage in behaviors that keep that talent from not even just their optimal well-being, but even their optimal performance? Yeah, Rashida, do you have any comment about that? Because it seems like firms have, you know, they're saying the right things and they are hiring. And then what's missing is, is a culture where everyone feels included. Yeah, I think that, that people say that, like, does your audio match your video, right? With respect to how you're showing up in the marketplace and inviting people to join your organization. And then what happens when they actually join the organization? And I think that most organizations and most law firms are reflective of, they're not monolithic and they definitely have the aspect of, 
being created by people, right? And so then there's inherent structures of things that might work well in one organization that wouldn't work the same as another organization. But I think what I have seen that has actually been very encouraging, particularly in my role. So I do spend a lot of time, you know, collaborating with other chief diversity officers and asking what are they seeing in their organization? Are they seeing improvement? Are they seeing people feeling more engaged? Where are the, the gaps and barriers that we need to really focus on? And some of it is really being able to move away from kind of like the well-intentioned and thinking about what are the real concrete steps that we can take to accelerate. So for example, at my firm, we do a monthly workload evaluation. We have a committee that spends time really understanding how all of our associates are getting work across the organization. And having been an an associate myself, I know that that is an area that can cause a lot of stress for an associate coming up. Am I going to be able to make my hours? And I don't have any work to make my hours. Is is the work substantive enough that I'm going to be able to move up through the organization? And so while, you know, every assignment that you get may not be the assignment that's going to immediately give you a, a, a huge book of business and, you know, set you on a level of expertise. Each of these experiences and making sure that people aren't being excluded, to your point, Ellen, which is really critical to their development and making them feel like, am I a member of the team? And is somebody noticing that I'm showing up? But I think it's also across the profession of us really trying to address, if we really think about it, is the class of 2018 is the last class that had this experience of being in the firm of being a whole first year. No other classes experienced that. And so I think by the numbers, the sheer numbers of individuals and attorneys that that would have happened for in law firm life, it's going to force us to kind of change and continue to have those conversations. And I've also found that the younger generation, um, I applaud them because they are always willing to raise their hand and say, I don't understand why this works like this. And so in some ways, calling us to task to say, we have a responsibility. And sometimes you're like, well, I'm only doing this because this is how it was done when I came up and not really questioning. But I think that the disruption from the pandemic is allowing us to kind of think differently and recognizing, like you said, Ellen and, and Denise kind of introduced, like we're even having a podcast talking about well-being and DEI, right? Like maybe that wasn't even a thing that people really thought about, you know, where that intersection was and that mental health and safety and that psychological safety also comes as a big component of having an effective DEI program. Yeah, you make some really good points, Rashida. And I was thinking about this, like we've talked a lot about how legal employers can make changes and address these issues. And sometimes I think listeners probably are wondering, like, what does that look like? You know, what what actions could a legal employer take, for instance? And so I'm curious, as a practical matter, how do you integrate your DEI priorities with your well-being initiatives at Wiley to create a culture of belonging for everyone there? Yeah, that's a great question. So before I even arrived, so when once the ABA came out with its well-being pillars, the firm had already started thinking about how do we become more strategic with well-being. And then during the pandemic, one of the members of our professional development team sent out a wellness at Wiley every Wednesday. I know I personally look forward to it. And what's great about it, it's literally two paragraphs, two or three paragraphs. And it has things in there from different types of food. It has, you know, maybe it's financial, like it has different things in context and really thinking about well-being and a very holistic standpoint. 
But what it also has every single time at the bottom of that email, it has the contact information for our reminder for our employee assistance program, as well as the DC Bars Lawyer Assistance Program. And that way, and reminding people it's confidential. And so whereas maybe you don't need it this week, but having that constant reminder that someone is there thinking about you, thinking about your well-being. And then similarly, what we started to do last year was having a celebration of cultural heritage. We couldn't get together in person, but we leverage all of the technology that we have now available from a video standpoint and took out moments to really celebrate things that were going on where we could because there was isolation, you know, people not being together and then humans being naturally social creatures. I think that was really hard for everybody. So everybody had trauma, everybody had grief. And so really being able to provide forums for people to discuss that so they're not internalizing. I think that, you know, there probably are more silos than we would like because you come in and you're working with your group um, and then you're next thing you know, you're walking the dog or you're taking a walk because our days are become very narrow. So I think this concept of us being able to get out and about and socialize, even if it's outside, socially distanced, is having that people were afraid. I mean, and that's the reality. And so I think initially during the first part of the pandemic, we were able to sustain ourselves because we're living under stress. But after a while, that stress, you know, the cortisone doesn't last that long. And so for us, we really thought about just launching a new department and having a renewed focus. What could we be doing internally through different, doing an assessment across all of our different programs to make it seem like how can we really impact an attorney and our professional staff's day-to-day experience when they come to the firm, that they really feel like every day they're coming in, they're adding value and people recognize that they're adding value. Because at the core, people are not always, I mean, people are motivated by different things, but they're not always motivated by money, but people always appreciate a thank you and a welcome and a smile. And maybe not every incident or, you know, you could do that all the time, but I think we shouldn't forget those things, particularly to be kind to people in this kind of time that no one's lived through before. I really want to lift that up because, you know, we were talking about empathy and compassion before. And I think, you know, maybe the single most powerful thing we could do is to be teaching law firm leaders and people in supervisory roles how to be empathic how to be compassionate, how to actually put themselves in the shoes of the people that they're supervising. We understand that they have pressures of their own coming from clients and to be compassionate to one another about those things. That would really, I think, be a game changer in terms of well-being and wellness. Yeah. It just makes me think, um, I keep coming back to this in so many ways, but the idea of connection, you know, that to connect with each other as human beings who are all struggling through something. And we always struggled as humans, but this last two years has just like taken that to a whole new level to use that phrase. And then, but what always helps is connection with each other, connection with your employees more than just, you know, is the work getting done, but like connecting with how are you doing as a human being and what can we do to help you through this time? I mean, that makes me think of kind of the last question that I think is important to cover today, given the pandemic. And and this one is one that you can both weigh in on because it's just such an important question is that moving out of this global pandemic, 
you know, why can't we just continue to treat our DEI training and our well-being program as separate, two separate initiatives? Like, why do we have to sort of look at them both as something as a pair or together, do you think? I think what we recognized beforehand, that's what we were doing and we weren't as effective because we humans are multidimensional, right? And we have different wants and needs. And I think if we think about like, even if you think about the evolution of diversity itself. So at first it was just like, we need to have diversity, you know, in order to change the thought process. Then it was, we need to have inclusion because there's no point to have diversity if we're not including everybody. And then the last layer was the equity component with making sure that if we're gonna have diversity and we're gonna include everybody, that inclusion may look different to different people because of their circumstances of where they're coming from. And how can we be mindful of that? So I think the wellness component is what we've seen is that if you don't have those things about the connection and the belonging, you can't even really have the wellness. You can't have people show up in a mental healthy state. You can't have them physically healthy because of the traumas that you know Ellen shared that take the physical toll. And I think a lot of times if we think about if an organization were to permit, you know, a lot of organizations have very strict um, rules and procedures and policies around physical safety. But now we're realizing that psychological safety is just as important as the physical, maybe even more so, right? Because it stays with us. And so if we're not designing our well-being programs to address that, then we're just kind of running through the motions and we're not getting the best out of you know, why we're even creating, like why even do it if we're not going to get the type of results? And we know that people are saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to go to another organization that will give me those things. I'm going to move closer to home so I can get that family connection. And so I think the nature of coming out of the pandemic is going to dictate and demand that we do better. I love your optimism, Rashida. I keep talking to people who say, let's go back to the way it was before. I'm really optimistic that the younger generation will not allow that to happen because the values of this generation are really different. They wanna know why, and they care about family, not just the women, and they care about social justice. And they're the greatest asset we have coming into this return to work. Yeah, they really definitely care about equality, right? It's almost kind of refreshing because, you know, you we've all kind of gone through our careers and kind of put our heads down. And it's always nice to hear this new generation said, but why are we doing that? And can't we do it better? And how do we leverage technology in a way that's meaningful and helps other people? And they're very uh, selfless in that approach and trying to bring everybody to the table. So I sometimes say that I really take the lead of people younger than me. I learned so much from their perspective of why can we do it better? And since pretty soon they'll outnumber, you know, the leaders in the organization, I think we'll also be challenged to, to follow their lead as well. That is true. It's important to remember that the millennial generation and then their children, they're the future lawyers. So this has all been a really stimulating discussion. And I, I think a very valuable topic to talk about and to keep talking about. So I hope we revisit it over and over again over the over the next couple of years. It's the level of importance is not going to go away. So it's really important to keep the discussion going. So I so appreciate both of you coming today and uh, your work on the column. And we ho- I hope to interact with you more in the future. For our listeners, 
please tune in uh, next time in May and June for the May-June issue of Toward Wellbeing, where we will talk about social media and technology and its impact on well-being. Thank you so much for joining us today. Rashida and Ellen, thank you so much for being with me today. I really appreciate your time and your thoughts and your expertise on this topic.